Hey guys, I just want to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. Sponsor for today's episode is Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free, and there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will even distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. That's where this podcast was made, and maybe that'll be where your podcast will be made. Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Michael Asetta. Today we're actually going to be talking about something that is a weird topic to start as the first episode. Some dog training gurus and teachers will start with classical conditioning or operant conditioning or behavior being the way to get whatever you want. What I actually want to talk about today is the six fluencies of a behavior. The six fluencies of a behavior. Now, why do I want to talk about those? One, I think it's very, very important to understand, one, what to start with and where you're going, but also the order that of it is important, right? So if you start off training something and you just jump to the next variable or aspect, trying to get a behavior really, really well, you might be all over the place. You might not be consistent, especially if you're training multiple dogs. And so to have a system in place, to have a routine, a protocol, it just makes everything a little more fluid. Now, that does not suggest that you cannot change what your protocol is, depending on the dog. That's always going to be a factor. But we don't want to just willy-nilly go into a training session, especially if you're a client trainer and you're meeting with clients and you just, oh, what's going on this week? What do we want to work on? Right? That might be nice and fluid. But once you get that information, oh, we want to work on leash walking. All right, now I'm going to take leash walking and I'm going to use that, plug it into my outline and say, okay, we're going to start with fluency number one. So fluencies of behavior, there are six of them. Precision, latency, speed, duration, distraction, and distance. Okay. Six fluencies of a behavior. If you are not writing this down, you better get out the notepad. Not if you're driving. You're just going to remember it, so I'm going to say it again. If you have a notepad, write it down. Outline it. This is for you to learn. So take it seriously. Get out the notepad, get the pen, or use a tablet, whatever you are, you fancy. All right. Six fluencies of behavior. Precision. Latency. Speed. Distance. Duration. And distraction. Now, those last three are kind of flexible. Okay? Hear me say the first time one order and the second time a second order. That's okay. Distance, duration, distraction all depend on what activity you're doing, how the dog is responding to each one, and what your end goal is. Right? Successful people always say you got to pick the end goal and work your way back. So, first, figure out what your end goal is. Okay. So, first, starting off with precision. Precision is getting the behavior you want. You cannot go anywhere else until you have the right behavior, until you know what you want, and the dog's actually starting to understand that that behavior results in getting something or avoiding something. 
So that's what we need to get right first. Precision. Now, it doesn't have to be accurate, right? It just needs to be precise. It needs to be exactly what you want. It doesn't need to be perfect in every scenario. It just needs to start getting to where you want to get to. So let's think of an example here. Let's do a sit. If you're trying to teach a sit and you're getting half sits and you're rewarding that, there's no point in getting to the next step. There just isn't because it's not right. If you're doing a recall and they're running to you and they're halfway to you and then just veer off to the side, that's not right. Recalls coming all the way to you, sitting in front of you, getting a treat, whatever it is, whatever, whatever you've determined your recall to be, whatever you've determined a sit to be. You know, some people who are doing advanced conditioning, they're doing squats. And so maybe they call it squat and they don't want the sit to go all the way down. They bring the treat all the way down and to keep the contraction on the hamstrings and quads, then they bring them right back up into a stand. That's totally fine. You just need to determine what your precision is. Once you've had that, you get the behavior to that level where it's precise, perfect. Now we go on to step two. Step two is latency. Latency is the difference between hearing the command and starting the command. Now that's an important distinction. That's different than speed. Latency is from hearing the command, processing in the brain, and then starting the command. Why is that important to start working on next? How are we going to build in any speed? How are we going to build in any motivation if it takes the dog five seconds to respond? That's just slowing down your training. It's making everything mundane and boring, and now you're just frustrated, and you don't want to do it, and then you don't do it, and now your dog suffers because you don't want to do it. Train your dog to respond faster, a little snappier. Good. So how do we do that? I'm going to use the example of marker training. You could say clicker training, marker training, whatever you want to say. So we know our dog can sit. Our dog is currently in a stand. You get some good repetitions in, some good uh, routine going, anticipation. You say, all right, I've lured it enough times. I've motioned enough times. They're starting to guess. I'm going to get them into a stand. I'm going to say the word sit. And the second their butt starts to go down, I'm going to mark and give them what they want. So, right, You're not looking for precision anymore. You've moved on to the next fluency. Is that going to damage your precision? No, because you're going to put it all together at the end. But you got to work on one thing at a time. So you're saying, okay, now I'm working on latency. I want the dog to respond quickly. And you have to set up the criteria for that. So you go, okay, my dog is responding reliably within five seconds. Slow, but within five seconds. I want them to respond within three seconds, and then I'll be happy. Now, you don't start at three seconds. Maybe you start at four seconds. Then you go to three seconds. But you've determined when I say the word sit, I want them to sit within three seconds. So you say the word sit, they start to go down, mark, click, whatever, then give them a treat. You do that a couple times. And that's the latency of it. Okay? That's the latency of it. That's just how you get the behavior started. Right? When you do a recall, you want them to run at you the second you say their name. They've heard the command. When do they start turning around to come to you? Now we'll get into later episodes talking about different reward schedules and how we can actually start to select 
the behaviors that we really, really like. But a quick overview of it is if you say sit and it falls outside of your window, you just don't give them a treat. It's simple as that. But you got to make sure that they're tolerant of not getting a treat, but still willing to be motivated and work with you. Okay. So you got latency. Say it. Start to do it. Mark. Treat. Now we go on to speed. Speed is the distance between the start of the behavior and the end of the behavior. Speed is the distance or the time between the start of the behavior and the end of the behavior. So, if you say sit, and now their butt starts to go down, once their butt actually hits the ground, good, treat. So you've worked on latency, they're doing it within three seconds, now you're rewarding the second their butt hits the ground. Literally, the second the, the most bottom hair hits the ground, they get a treat. And once again, you make a tight criteria. They got to do it within whatever is physically capable of the dog. So, clearly there's some gravity involved. There's some muscle development involved, especially in some tricks. Right? Let's say doing a jump. If you're trying to select for... I'm going to say a higher jump in this case, but I know we're talking about speed. All right, let's say we're doing a recall instead. That's a better example. You're doing a recall. You're at 100 feet. Is it capable for your dog to recall within 10 seconds at 100 feet? That's up to you and you determine with your dog. You got to set a realistic goal physically and what their ability is in the training at the moment. Right? Do you have the right motivator? Maybe that's the problem. You don't have the right reward for them. They don't really feel like they want to run to you. That's a problem. we got to develop that. And is it capable for your dog to run at that speed to you? <clears throat> so that's speed. The time between the beginning and the end of the behavior. Then we'll go to duration. That's my preferred to go to. Duration is the length of time that the dog is willing to do the behavior before being reinforced. So you start off just getting the behavior, right? Precision, latency, you've gone through all those. Now let's say they know how to do the sit. So they sit. And there's two ways to go about this. One I prefer more than the other, but I'll give you both. Because it's dog training and there's a hundred ways to train a dog. There's a hundred ways to skin a cat. So if you're going to teach duration. You can either have them do the behavior and then withhold the reward until they've met the requirement. So sit, butt goes down. Five seconds later, I give you a treat. That's option one. That's my preferred method. It's my preferred method. I don't want to have to reset and give them a treat. And in another episode, we'll go over the ABC triangle. This next method, I think, breaks the ABC triangle. But the next method is putting them in a position, giving them a treat, immediately giving them a second treat, immediately giving them a second treat, and then you just keep going and going and going and trying to build in duration that way. Now, sometimes that helps the dog understand that they're supposed to continue. But oftentimes, I find dogs develop a dependency on that, and it's actually harder to lengthen the gap between those unless you do it really, really well and it's the right dog. So again, I prefer the first method. 
Sit, one, two, treat. Reset, sit, one, two, three, four, treat. Reset, right? And you just keep going and going and going. You slowly build it up that way until you get your desired time, whatever it may be. So if you were doing barking, bark. Do one bark, mark, treat. You do two barks, right? And how do you get to two barks? You just kind of wait until they get frustrated and they try again. But what I would not do is say bark or speak, whatever your word is, right? Bark. They bark once. Then you say bark a second time. That goes into an intermittent reward schedule. That's not what we want. They should be doing the same thing from one command for an extended period of time. Now we're going to talk about distance. So distance is how far your dog can perform the behavior or how far you can move away from your dog while they're doing a behavior. So that's a sit-stay, that's a stay at a distance, that's a, a sit at a distance, I'm sorry. Right, so how do you do that? Put them into a sit. Treat. Reset. Put them into a sit. Take one step away, come right back in. Treat. Reset. That's, my, again, right? my method. My preferred method is having them do the whole thing and they end with the treat. Other way, put them into a sit, treat, step away, come back in, treat, step away, come back in, treat, step away, come back in, treat. And then you build up that way. That would be a stay. Let's say you put them into a down or a stand or a bow position or you got them, whatever it is. So then how do you do distance with your dog now doing something new? Some people use a box for this. They'll put their dog in the box or on the box. Uh, in my experience and, and what I'm doing now, we're using balance equipment. And so we'll get our dog on the balance equipment and we'll actually do some distance work from there. So what does that look like? You just give them commands, right? Play, sit, down, stand, off, but whatever it is. Sit, down, sit, down, sit, down. You just get a good rhythm going. Good rhythm. Good, good, good. Then you just take one step away and you continue to do it. Same thing, same thing, same thing. Come back in, treat. Reset, get them off, get them back on. You two steps away, three steps away, and you just keep going. You guys get the point, right? Slowly splitting up the behavior into these bigger chunks and making sure they're successful before you go to the next spot. Finally, we have distraction. Now, I put distraction last for many, many things. Sometimes there's no point in working on distance or duration if the problem is a distraction. If I can stand right next to my dog, there's no part in doing distance until we get some good distraction work going. Can your dog do the behavior in a stimulating environment, whatever that stimulating environment is to your dog? Is it other dogs? Is it people? Is it fireworks? Is it bicycles? Whatever it is. So systematic desensitization. You are slowly bringing the dog closer or bringing the stimulus closer. You're decreasing the distance between the two until you are right up next to it and the dog is still responding the same way it was if the stimulus wasn't there. So to do that, you start at a far enough distance to where the stimulus isn't so exciting or you start with the stimulus lessened. So if you can't physically get further away or you need to work such close distance or approximation, then you just try to lessen the stimulus. So if it's another dog, you would just have that dog be quiet or sleeping 
or calm or a stuffed dog. If it's a person, you just have them stand there facing the other way, sitting in a chair, doing nothing. It's a tennis ball. It's just laying there, right? All distractions. If you're doing protection work and you're in a decoy suit, you should just be standing there. Shouldn't do anything, shouldn't look threatening, shouldn't be trying to stimulate the dog, shouldn't be talking, shouldn't be moving. Stand there like a statue. You work the dog in obedience. You get him moving around. You get him focused on you. You reward them a whole bunch. You put them away. You take away the stressor or the stimulus, whatever you want to call it. Then you bring them back You do it again. Put them away, bring them back, do it again. Put them away, bring them back, do it again. You do that so much to where they just stop worrying about the stressor or getting overexcited about the stimulus. They just don't care anymore because there's no point in caring. They aren't getting to it. Or it's not coming at them, depending on what, you know, if they're overexcited or if they're fearful. Just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them. But dogs do not generalize well. So as you've taught them obedience before, now you're just getting into a more stimulating environment. That brings up the excitement level, which we'll go over again in another episode, the Yerkes-Dachshun Law which is focus and excitement and how they're relative to each other. But in this case, you want to make sure that you are going insanely slow, insanely slow. There's no point in rushing this. If you rush it, you have to reset completely anyway. You might as well have ended on a good note. And a trainer's famous last words is one more. Let's do one more. Stop right there. Just put them away. Take a break. Bring out your other dog if you have another dog to work, and then try it. So, quick recap. Six fluencies of a behavior are precision, latency, speed, distance, duration, distraction. You can kind of play around with those. Figure out which one you like to do first or what order you want to do them in. I find that that's the order. Precision, latency, speed, distance, duration, distraction. That is my order. That's what I prefer to do. I found it works out and, you know, works for me. Doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Doesn't mean it's going to work for the dogs that you're working with. But it works for me. I find value in it. Training dogs and training owners are exactly the same thing. Let me explain. So, whenever you're training a dog, and you're looking at the behavior as a whole, and let's say you're doing a specific thing. So, in terms of agility, let's say the obstacle is jump, tire, tunnel, jump, tire, A-frame. Jump, tire, tunnel, jump, tire, A-frame. You got kind of an infinity sign going, let's say. Now, if you're moving with the right hand over the jump tire and the tunnel, and you recall over the next jump, turn, pivot to the left hand to send through the tire and the A-frame, that is a very specific movement. Doing that properly results in a faster time, smoother transition, better communication to the dog, less effort on your part so you can start thinking about the next moves if there was more moves into the routine. But being efficient like that really, really helps in the long run. Does it take some time to get the maneuvering and the timing and the handling correct? Absolutely. But 
once you do, it's a lot more efficient. So in coaching clients on how to do those things, sometimes we have to completely stop, take a mental breather, and do it again. Now, in my experience talking with clients and doing agility, often I find that completely stopping, redoing the entire routine, and taking it piece by piece absolutely helps. So something called the EDGE method, E-D-G-E, EDGE. And it is a way of explaining something to somebody that really helps. E, educate. D, demonstrate. G, guide. E, examine. So with those four things, it becomes easier to break down the whole aspect. Okay, first I'm going to explain jump, tire, tunnel, call back through the jump, pivot to the left, tire, A-frame. I've explained it. Now I'm going to demonstrate. So I'm going to go through it so slowly that you see every tiny movement of my body. Then I'm going to go through a little faster, and then I'm going to go through it full speed. Now I'm going to guide you through those movements. So I'm going to take you with me. We're going to go on a walk together. Jump through the tire, through the tunnel, recall over the jump, pivot to the left, tire, A-frame. And you're going to tinily critique every single movement as they go. You're going to make sure that they're doing it right. Maybe you do that two, three times. And then comes the part of examining. You're going to let them do it on their own. Now in a perfect world, I would have them do it without the dog. But everybody gets really eager and they want to do it with the dog. So they start doing it with the dog and they immediately mess up. So what do you do? You now have gone through all of the steps to appropriately teach someone how to do something and they're still not getting it right. How often does that happen with a dog? You get them up to a pretty good standard. You start doing the actual stuff, whether you're doing competition or real world training, whatever it is. And now they're not doing it. And you're like, what the hell? You were just doing this. You just got to take a step back. It's as simple as that. Their brain might be a little overwhelmed. Whatever's going on with them, you got to take a step back. And maybe there's something you didn't realize from before. So, using my example here of the, the edge method and walking them through, maybe where I was standing helped them turn a certain way just so happens in that scenario to where when I'm no longer standing there they think that they have all this space to move and so they do and it's too much movement the other part is we've added in a variable that has completely changed the game so when you're talking about running with agility if you don't have the moves down solid let's say not even agility, but if you're doing protection work and you don't know what you're doing, you have a bite suit on and you're not moving in a fluid manner, you don't know how to absorb the hit, you don't know the apex of where the dog is, the angles that you need to hit. If you are not confident in that, there is no way you are going to be able to do it under the stress of a dog. The same way that if a dog isn't confident in the scenarios that they know, sit, recall, down, stayed extended periods of time with you at a far distance. If they're not confident in those things, 
under the stressors of life, they're probably going to fail. So what's going to help in agility? I'm not going to say it's going to help in protection because those dogs don't move so slow. But in agility, maybe you slow everything down. You do jump, sit, tire, sit, tunnel, sit, recall, jump, sit. Now I'm going to turn, tire, sit, A-frame, sit. So you slow everything down to make sure that they're actually going to do it right, that the person's going to do it right, and then you start to add in speed. Okay, jump, tire, sit, tunnel, recall, jump, sit. Right? Notice I stopped right before the hard part, which is that pivot. So now they pivot, tire, A-frame. And then you just keep going and you do the whole course that way. It's a great way to split the behavior down, which we talk about in Free Shaping, another uh, podcast that's going to be coming soon. The splitting of it and breaking everything down as small as you can. So if you're doing a protection work and you have a sleeve on and you're presenting the non-sleeved arm and the move is to quickly step, get the dog to come towards you, move back towards away from them right so you're actually turning towards them but you're moving away from them so that they actually catch the appropriate arm if you don't have that move down and if you stumble and trip you know how to recover now and you know where to place your weight whether it's on your toes or on your heels depending on the angles what like how how are you going to be able to do that when a dog is staring you in the eyes wanting to bite you unless you are just stone cold there's no way that amount of stress isn't going to have an effect on your performance. Scientifically, we know stress has an effect on our performance. Cortisol levels are pumping through your body, through your brain, and it impairs your judgment. That's the different from right, adrenaline, which actually makes you hyper-focused. Cortisol, when you're stressed and you're not confident, you don't know where you're going or what you're doing, that's going to cause a problem. And there's different people, right? So you might be really excited and be able to do certain things when you're stressed. And other people just crumble and cry and fall apart. So you have to make sure you and the person you're training or talking to or the dog you're training and talking to feels confident in their abilities to do the behavior. Now what usually happens We spend a lot of time making sure our dogs feel confident, right? We're using toys. We're using food rewards. We're just making them feel good. You're like, yeah, you got this. You got this. That's great. That's awesome. Wonderful. And then we put them in the stressful scenario. We say, you better do it right. If you don't, I'm going to correct you. What does that teach the dog? Not only is there more stress involved, but for whatever reason, my handler, my trainer, my owner has now completely changed. I don't understand the rules of this new game and frankly I don't like this new game so you gotta gotta take it slow go a step back and you should if you're going to be balanced and you're going to use corrective and positive methods that has to be explained to the dog before you get out in that scenario you cannot go strictly positive get in the scenario and then weigh them on the dog it makes no sense If they hear the word sit and that means there's an opportunity for reinforcement and they don't sit and then they get corrected, now they're confused on whether sit means I'm going to get something good if I do it right, but if I don't do it right, I'm going to get wailed. If they don't understand that, which means you haven't taught them appropriately, 
then you might as well just give up now. Your dog's going to be too confused and you're going to ruin the trust with them. So take it slow. Remember the edge method. Educate, demonstrate, guide, examine. You can do the same thing with dogs, which we actually are going to go in more depth on another podcast where it's teach, train, proof, test. Teach, train, proof, test. We're going to go through that in another episode. For today, my challenge and what I leave you with, make sure you're breaking things down the smallest steps humanly possible. I mean, pivot your big toe half a degree to the left, you know. Break it down super, super slow and tiny steps so that they're manageable, they're confident in what they're doing, and you can accelerate your training that way. Good luck. I look forward to your progress. Today we're going to talk about the four steps of training a dog for a very particular task. That is what I'm calling it at the moment. It's basically the four steps of training a dog, but there's so much that goes in training a dog. I got to find one with a better name, but that's what I'm leaving in for now. Four steps to training your dog for a very specific task. And the reason I say a very specific task, maybe a a multi-complexity task, is because the last aspect of it is to test them. And if you don't have this giant criteria to test them on, then what's the point of going through all these steps? Okay, so the order is teach, train, proof, and test. Teach, train, proof, test. If you were listening to one of the other podcasts, I did mention it in there. So now you're getting the whole explanation. Teach, train, proof, test. First one, teach. You have to teach the dog what you want them to do before you move on to the other more complex aspects of training. And this is actually talked about in our Six Fluencies of Behavior podcast, where we talk about precision, getting the behavior right. You have to teach them, one, how to earn reinforcement, how to avoid punishment, but also how to ensure that they are successful out in the world, out in the field. So we got to teach the behavior first. If you're teaching to sit, that means luring or shaping or pushing their butt down and molding. You're teaching a recall. That means a long line. That means working through it. That means teaching them from point A to point B, you got to get to me and I'll give you a treat or I'll let you play with a toy. Or you take the stimulus off an e-collar. All those things you got to teach them. The e-collar is a perfect example. You got to teach them how to turn off that stimulus. Right? Negative reinforcement. I'm going to add this stimulus, this irritant, and when you release the irritant, that's the reward. And then I couple that with positive reinforcement. So you've let that go. Now I'm going to give you a treat when you get to me. Now I got two things, two quadrants of learning going towards me. So that's teaching. You got to teach them the behavior first. Then we get to the training aspect, which everybody jumps over the training aspect. You got to train them. I know you taught them. And you think that's training. It's not. Teaching, right? You taught them the behavior. Now you got to train it. So you're going to go through the Variable reward schedules. You're going to go through 
the distraction, the duration, you're going to go through the speed, you're going to go through all those things that you have to go through under the different circumstances and help the dog start to understand that this is everywhere. They can do this anywhere. You also want to train verbal cues and hand gestures, maybe. Maybe you want to teach uh, with light gestures or following a laser, whatever it is. So you, you got to you got to break that down. I taught them the thing. Now I'm going to train it. I'm going to do it every single day. We're going to work on it all the time. There's different rewards in there. There's different adverse, whatever it is. Now we get to the aspect of proofing. Now everybody jumps from teaching to proofing. Proofing is when you go out into the real world. And you start doing the training in environments in which they have to generalize the behavior or they're going to fail. You're proofing it against other things, other dogs, other animals. I was watching a video the other day and this dog is doing a article search on gravel with puppies climbing on it. Just like berating the hell out of this dog. And it is glued to what it's doing and looking for. That's amazing proofing. Amazing proofing. Anything could be going on. That dog's like, I'm doing my thing. Proofing. Super, super important after you do the training phase. And the last one is testing. Testing your dog is the hardest thing to do by yourself. Testing your dog is the hardest thing to do by yourself, and here's why. You can do the teaching, you can do the training, you can do the proving. Somebody else needs to test your dog. So, depending on what you're doing, does that mean someone needs to take your dog and be able to do the things that you've done with them? Or does it mean they have to set up the scenario for you and say, go for it? You're doing detection. They set up the room, they set up the hide. You just walk in blind and go, okay, I got I to gotta go do this. And you know nothing. You don't know when to reward your dog or when to correct your dog. You don't know if they did it right or wrong until it's over. So we have to test our dogs, but we don't want to over-test our dogs. The game should always be fun, which means there should always be a possibility for reinforcement. And yes, when we get to the real world and they start doing police work or you start doing competition, they're not going to get to do the fun part at the end, the playing with the toy, the running around, the getting a treat. But that goes into variable reward schedule, which we talk about in another podcast. But when we get to testing, everybody jumps from, well, I trained the dog, I'm going to test it. I'm going to test it. I'm going to test it. Well, let's see what it does. Let's see how it goes. Let's see if it can do this thing that I came up with this morning. No. You want it to be able to do that, train it to do that, proof it to do that, and then test it. You can't just walk into a room and say, all right, let's see if they can do it. Well, let's see if they can do it. It was one of the biggest mistakes I made when I first started training dogs. Once I understood the concepts and everything, I said, well, I wonder if I set it up just right, the dog could do it. And so I'd set it up. The dog would half do it. And I'd be happy with that. And I would say, awesome. 
And then the next week would come and I'd see the dog again. All right, listen. And I learned through that. There's a lot of steps and there's a lot of work that has to go in before you start testing the dog on anything. So, you know, if you have a puppy, if you have a dog and you're trying to do competition or your puppy's trying to do the uh, CGC, like you just got to slow down. You got to train them properly. Get, get so far ahead of anybody who's taking the test that by the time you take the test, it's easy. It's easy. I'll tell you a quick story unrelated to dogs. When I was younger, I did martial arts. I got my black belt. It was a lot of hard work, but... The hardest part for me was the training up until getting the black belt. It's a three-hour-long physical exam of other black belts fighting you and you having to do all of the routines and forms and katas and everything you had learned over the past 10 years. And so my sensei, since John Silvestro, if you're listening to this, John Silvestro, his first black belt test I believe it was his first. It might have been his third. His first or third. He went up to Master Angargiola afterwards and said, I didn't earn this. The test was too easy. And he told him, Master Angargiola told John, you are just overprepared. You trained so hard that this was easy. That's the kind of mentality that you want everything in life to be, but it's particularly your dogs and when you're going for certification. You should have trained so hard. What is the classic saying? Don't train until you get it right. Train until you can't get it wrong. That's what you want from your dog. A hundred percent certainty. Will you ever get there? Probably not. But if you get to 99, you are way more equipped than anybody else going into that testing room. Make sure that you're going through the motions, but actually being attentive to those motions. Don't just go, okay, this is what we're doing today because that's what I did with my last dog, and this is the training measurement we're doing today. No, teach, train, proof, test. You can go through every single one of those steps with every single behavior before you even get to the actual test that you want to do. That's fine, right? You're doing a certification, and you got a bunch of parts. Let's say it's sit, down, heal, stay, and come. Okay, I'm going to go through sit. I'm going to train it. I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to teach it. I'm going to train it. I'm going to proof it. And then I'm going to test it. Okay, now I'm going to move on to downs. Now I'm going to move on to heal. I'm going to go through all of it. Now I'm going to work on stay. Then I'm going to go through all of it. Then you put it all together. You say, okay, I'm going to do sit and down. I'm going to go through all of it. I'm going to do heal and stay. I'm going to go through all of it. So you break that down. To the point where you are 100% certain that they've got sitting down right under all of these other criteria, the proofing and the testing. Then you put it all together. Then you elongate it. You make it longer. And then you go for that certification. With the right training plan and the right steps in the proper order, and with the correct techniques, you can get there much faster than you think you can. But if you're going to mope around and say, my dog's not doing this, it's because you're not doing what you need to be doing. So get out there. Go train. I look forward to your progress.
Today we're going to talk about the five satir modes. S-A-T-I-R, satir modes. Okay, write that down, satir modes. We got five of them. Let's go through it. Placator, blamer, computer, distractor, and leveler. Those are the five satir modes. Placator, blamer, computer, distractor, leveler. You want to be a leveler. You want to be a leveler. I'll explain that in a little bit. Placator. The placator is somebody who, when wrongly accused, will take the blame on everything. They want to please everybody, and so they will take the blame. They will say it is their fault as to why something didn't work or their dog isn't doing it right. Placator. So, you're watching somebody do obedience. And the dog doesn't sit. They were told to sit, and they didn't sit. You go, why isn't your dog sitting? And they say, well, well I, just, I just haven't worked with him in a while, and, you know, he's, he's really tired today, but it, it's really my fault. I really should have been on top of him. Okay. Now, you notice there, no point was something pointed out as to what the placator is going to do to fix the problem. Placator is not interested in fixing the problem. They just want everybody to happy, everybody to be happy. Okay? The person who's coming at them, they just want them to be happy. They want the dog to be happy. They want the person down the block at the McDonald's to be happy. They want everybody to be happy, and they're going to take the blame for everything. Second, we have the blamer. Now, the blamer will blame anybody else. It's basically the opposite of the placator. Will blame anybody else as to why the dog's not doing the thing it's supposed to do. Same scenario. Why isn't your dog sitting? You told him to sit. Oh, well, Bobby over there started moving something around. My dog got distracted. Oh, well, you know, there's something on the floor. My dog doesn't really like that stuff on the floor. It's usually the dog they're blaming. And again, do they offer a solution? No. Oh, well, you were talking to me and you asked me a question. And that's what, That was after the fact, number one. Number two, you're not taking credit. And you're not proposing a solution. Blamer will blame anybody else besides themselves. They will blame the dog. They will blame anybody. Then we have the computer. The computer will use logic instead of blaming somebody else or taking the blame. They will use logic. They will try to compute, and that's where it comes from, compute scientific reason as to why their dog isn't sitting. Why isn't your dog sitting? Well, we haven't really gotten up to a variable reward schedule, and I haven't given him a toy. So now, now that might be true. However, they're not suggesting a solution. Once again, they've taken they've taken the hit from the person, from me in this case, right? Why didn't you sit your dog? Why didn't your dog sit? They're taking that and they're directing it towards evidence and science. 
So those are the first main three. It's important to get those three. Placator, blamer, computer. That helps us understand the distractor and the leveler. Now the distractor is the worst person to own, handle, or train a dog. The only dog that they should have is a stuffed dog. They will rotate between being a placator, blamer, and computer as to why it's not their fault and the situation as a whole does not matter. Perfect example of this. I had a client and I could tell immediately she was a distractor. What's going on today? Oh, well, you know, my dog's doing really, really well. Okay. So, first off, that's a lie. She wouldn't be coming to me if her dog was doing really well. Tell me, what do you want to work on? Oh, well, he's been, do he's been doing this mouthing thing. Okay, when is he mouthing? Well, you know, it's really not that bad. He just kind of, you know, I'm playing with him too rough. Boom, placator. I'm playing with him too rough. I shouldn't be playing with him like that. It's my fault. It's my fault. Okay, well, then we started talking about it. You shouldn't be playing with him like that. Right as I started to talk about it, she goes, well, it's really my mom. My mom is the one who, who kind of roughs her up and then gets mad when, okay, so now we've swapped to blaming. I'm going to blame mom who's making my dog crazy. So then I go, okay, well, we should probably have a conversation with your mom. Is she able to come in next time? Before I finish my statement, she goes, well, I heard German Shepherds are just like this. I, I read it online. There was an article. And I was like, okay, you need to stop reading articles. You're coming to me for my advice. Stop reading those articles or at least send them to me so I can tell you if they have some validity to them. And that is what a distractor will do. She did that for the next half hour. Circling around the drain. Avoiding every single answer and solution I would give her. She would placate then she would blame then she would compute then she'd placate then she'd compute then she'd blame then she'd get and it just kept going around in a circle until finally i said okay we need to stop we're out of time today i want you to go home i want you to figure out three things you want to work on when you come back and we are tackling those three things she left she came back and we worked on it now that's how you have to kind of talk to a distractor you have to cut through everything and just stop them. But if you're too harsh, they're going to placate or they're going to compute. So you have to just, nope, just stop right there. This is what we're going to do. You're going to go home. You're going to think about that. When you come back, you're starting off on the right foot because it's going to be frustrating when you're talking to a distractor and you're going to be confused and you're going to be like, how am I ever supposed to talk through this? Now, if you are the distractor, cut it out. Knock it off. You don't care about solving the issue. Get rid of the dog, especially if it's a behavior problem like aggression. And if you're trying to get into competition, that is your ultimate goal. Focus on that. Don't focus on how we're attacking your ego because of our criticism. You need to get that out of the way so you can actually get to your goal and what you want to do. Now, 
the leveler is the best, the best dog trainers in the world are levelers. And here's how. Levelers will go through placating, blaming, and computing to actually solve the problem. It's the only one out of the five satire modes that actually care about solving the problem. So, your dog's not sitting. Let me think about it. Have I gotten up to a re variable reward schedule? Yes, okay, so it's not that. Was there a loud sound that might have distracted my dog? Perhaps, but maybe it's not that. Have I worked with my dog today? Right, thinking about it my way. Oh, I haven't worked with them a lot. Well, have I worked with my dog enough today to where their excitement levels are in tune with me? They're not thinking about running around the backyard because they're overly excited. Do I have the right reinforcement? I do? Great. Then maybe it's just a training issue. But the leveler logically goes through all of them and does so according to what's going on. They can blame the dog if it's really the dog not doing it. Balanced trainers are perfect levelers. If they're truly balanced and if they're perfectly level. I know 100% that my dog should have sat under every single condition that's going on because I'm fully aware of what's going on. So that means there might need to be a correction given. My dog didn't do it because they just decided that they weren't going to do it. And in certain respects, that's not allowed. Police work. You cannot just not let go of the person when I say drop. I will give you every possible opportunity to do it right. And I have rewarded you hundreds of thousands of times. And for this one instant, you're not going to do it. And so I'm going to correct you. You're going to get off. And we're going to train through that. And we're going to do it again and again. And I'm not going to just let you continue biting that person if that's what you want to do because that's more fun. And then afterwards, I need to take a step back and say, okay, have I split the behavior down far enough? Have I done most of the training that's necessary to get my dog up to the level that they need to? Is my dog on the right side of the York Stockson law? We're going to talk about the Yurt-Stockson Law in another podcast. But is my dog on the right side? And I didn't realize it. Do I need to calm him down? Is he on the left side? Do I need to bring him up to excitement? Those are all the things that a leveler is thinking about. you got to be wrong when you're wrong, right when you're right. And you got to know the difference. I'm either going to blame myself I'm going to use logic to understand what's going on here. I'm going to blame the dog for not doing it right. Get back out there. Get to your training. I look forward to your progress. <laughs>